This morning, we're starting a new sermon series through the miracles of Jesus. And before we read our scripture passage this morning from the gospel according to John chapter 2, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, creator of the seen and the unseen, at the beginning of time you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them through the power of your Spirit. So send to us now your Spirit, who moved over the face of the waters to move within our hearts and minds that they might be open to receive the recreating power of your Word. Through Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the gospel according to John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we begin a new sermon series on the miracles of Jesus, I want to take a few moments to uh, address just a couple of things about the miracles in general before we look specifically at this miracle in John 2. First, there are some who profess the name of Jesus Christ who want to deny the miracles as never actually having happened, or explain them away as though they are not truly supernatural. As though they're, while they seem to be extraordinary, there is actually a scientific explanation that can be given to each. And I must confess that I find it interesting that someone who could believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and at the same time be one who denies that he had authority over nature. 
the power to heal the sick, the ability to cast out demons. At a very basic level, though, if we are to take Scripture at its word and therefore to accept it as true, as the Westminster Confession puts it, then we must not deny or explain away the miracles. For Scripture presents them to us as both historical fact and as sovereign supernatural acts of God. For instance, here in John 2, we find John very intentionally rooting this event in time and space. We are given the who, the what, the when, and the where of this miracle. And this is to tell us that this miracle did, in fact, occur. There are witnesses who can testify to its validity. But these details are not only to root this event in history, as we will see. They are also significant to this miracle. Further, we should also recognize how Scripture speaks of the miracles, the language it uses, because it's very telling. There are three primary words that Scripture uses in the New Testament, each carrying a different emphasis, but all pointing to the same reality. The first Greek word we translate simply as miracle. And I'm going to say this Greek word because I think you will recognize in it an English equivalent. The word is dunamis, the word from which we get our word dynamite. It means power. A miracle is a display of the dynamic power of Almighty God. It demonstrates that God has power over the entire created order that he has made. In other words... This word is pointing to God's sovereign power and authority to act supernaturally over his creation to accomplish his purposes. And although John doesn't use the Greek word here in chapter 2 of his gospel for miracle, he nonetheless wants us to understand that this miracle is indeed a sovereign act of God alone. There is no one else who is responsible for this miracle other than God. This is why John records this rather perplexing interaction between Jesus and his mother in verses 3 and 4. To our ears, it sounds as though Jesus is rudely rebuking his mother for commenting to him that the wine at this wedding festivity has run out. From the start, his response seems to ring of condescension as he addresses her as woman. We might be tempted to read his response something like, Woman, don't tell me my business. But we must remember here that John records for us Jesus speaking to his mother in the very same way when he says, Woman, behold your son. These are words spoken from the cross, entrusting his mother into the care of his beloved disciple John. These are not words of condescension. They are tender words. They are affectionate words. And so we mustn't hear condescension in Jesus' voice here in John 2 either. But the question remains, why does he respond in this manner to her? 
Well, there is a lot going on here, but Jesus' response is primarily for two purposes. First, to point to his death and exaltation to which this miracle itself points. Thus, his comment that his hour has not yet come. And second, and importantly for us here, to distance his coming actions from his mother's comments. You see, there mustn't be any mistake that this miracle occurs not because of any kind of human advice or agenda or manipulation, but because of the sovereign will of God. It's not then because Mary noticed a need and called Jesus' attention to it. The credit for the miracle is not given in any way to Mary as an intercessor. The stress, rather, is squarely on the sovereign power and will of God. So even though John does not use the word miracle here, he is still stressing God's sovereign power to act. Another word used in the New Testament for miracles is wonder. This word expresses the people's response to God's power. When one witnesses God's supernatural activity, God's spectacular inbreaking into our reality, it creates a sense of awe, astonishment, amazement. And so you see how these two words, miracle and wonder, are revealing to us these events are not to be considered normally occurring natural events, but are events which are recognized and received as over and against the created order. They are not meant to be explained away then. The point isn't to figure out how they happen, but to receive them in faith and marvel over them. John uses a different word altogether here in chapter 2 and throughout his gospel to speak of miracles, though. We find this word in verse 11. The word is sign. This is a very intentional word choice. You see, the word sign shows that the miracles performed by Jesus carry significance. They signified truths concerning God, concerning Christ, and concerning the salvation he has brought. Simply put, John wants us to understand that there is a message in the miracles. And this is the second thing I want us to understand as we look at the miracles of Jesus. They aren't simply naked displays of God's power. Miracles are not merely magic tricks for the purpose of amazing the masses. The miracles in the Gospels are, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, parables. Spurgeon said, All our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct as well as impress. They are sermons to the eye, just as spoken discourses were sermons to the ear. They are meant, therefore, to create and cultivate faith in the mind and the heart of the beholder. One of the last things that John tells us in his gospel is that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So even as scripture affirms through the miracles that there is a God and that this God both created the world and works sovereignly to sustain and redeem it, the miracles and the gospels are meant to give us understanding of who Jesus is and build within us faith in him. And this is why we're going to spend the next 12 weeks looking at the miracles of Jesus. It's my prayer that during this time, we will come to a deeper knowledge of Jesus and his saving power. And that deeper knowledge would grow within us a deeper affection for the Lord, a deeper desire to worship him in spirit and truth, and a deeper commitment and willingness to follow and serve him in obedience to all he has commanded. So let's look now specifically at this miracle in John 2. And I want to look at it by going back to the who, the what, the when, and the where. Remember that John, the Apostle John, presents us with a theological gospel with significance packed in the details. And right from the beginning, John locates us in time and space, the when and the where, telling us that on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. But this is not merely telling us when and where this event took place. These details carry meaning. The third day. Now, we might immediately think of the significance of the third day, the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while all the miracles of John's gospel are ultimately pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, what John really wants us to do here is link together this event with the preceding running sequence of events of chapter 1. So if you look at your Bibles at John 1, you find each passage starting in verse 29, beginning with the phrase, the next day. Three times this occurs. And now we have on the third day. That is on the third day after Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to follow him. And if we count up these days, beginning with the events of verse 19 and following, then we will find a full week's worth of events. So what is John doing here? He's showing to us the first week of Jesus's public ministry, during which time John the Baptist calls for repentance and proclaims the coming of the Messiah during which time Jesus is baptized and anointed with the Spirit, and during which time Jesus calls his first five disciples. And this week now culminates with this miracle at a wedding in Cana. Do you see the significance of this? It isn't merely the prologue of John's gospel that points us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word of God. And the word was with God and the word was God. It is the entirety of John 1 that points us back to Genesis. God's creative work in Genesis 1 and 2 ends in the creation of man and woman in God's image. And then we find the very first wedding instituted by God himself between the first man and the first woman. And how... Is this first week of Jesus' ministry ending? That's right, at a wedding. What John wants us to see is that the word, 
through whom all things were made and in whom all things have life, has now taken on flesh and dwells among his people for the sake of making all things new. The old creation is now giving way to the new creation in Jesus Christ. And when we understand this reality, we can rightly interpret this miracle as being about replacing the old with the new. So the transformation of water into wine, the what of this passage, was not merely for the purpose of saving the party or rescuing the host from embarrassment. There is deep significance to this miracle through which the glory of God in Jesus Christ is revealed. Look at verse 6. John is sure to point out that the water is in six stone water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. You see, in the Old Covenant, ritual washing was very important. There are many instances that we can find in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant law that called for the washing of hands or the entire body. Everything from coming into contact with a corpse to skin conditions, to the consecration of priests in the temple. During this COVID pandemic, we recognize the wisdom of frequently washing. But this old covenant ritual washing wasn't for good hygiene. These ritual washings were a part of the cleanliness laws and were about being made ceremonially pure. You see, it was understood that only those with clean hands and a pure heart, as Psalm 24 declares, are worthy to come before a holy God. But these ritual washings prescribed under the Old Covenant were but shadows of the true cleansing required to come before God Almighty. In other words, what was called for in the Old Covenant was nothing more than symbolic purification. The reality was and still is you can't wash the filth of sin off of yourself. The ritual washings never really purified. For man is incapable of making himself clean in a way that is presentable and acceptable before the Lord. We need something beyond ourselves to take away our impurity, to wash us clean of our sin. And here is our reality before God. Every one of us, every one of us is stained with the filth of our iniquity. But every attempt to make ourselves acceptable to God ends in utter failure. This means that the prescriptions given for purification under the law didn't really contain the power to relieve guilt nor did they contain the power to enable a new way of life, the moving of ourselves out of the muck and mire of our sin. Hebrews 10 makes this clear when it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the ritual washings weren't for the purpose of truly providing cleansing, but were instead meant to point forward to a time of fulfillment when a sacrifice would be offered that would cleanse sin, would remove the burden of guilt, would enable the possibility to live a holy life before the Lord. The ritual washings of the Old Covenant then were a placeholder. A superficial external cleansing which awaited the time when the Lord himself would wash us as white as snow, inside and out, as promised by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And this is why John the Baptist comes baptizing with water, but he also declares in John 1.33, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John recognizes that there must be one who supersedes him. So his comment is not merely an announcement of the coming of the Messiah. It is a declaration of our sin-defiled state that needs true cleansing, complete cleansing. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, John declares him to be the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That is to say, in him, the purification system of the old covenant is fulfilled and replaced. We know that this is ultimately and finally fulfilled and replaced by his one perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. But what we are seeing here in this miracle is a transition from John the Baptist, who served as the last of the old Testament prophets in a way, proclaiming the need for cleansing to the one who would supersede him to inaugurate a new age in which there would be true cleansing and in which there would be a culmination in a great marriage feast. And this is undeniably and unmistakably what this miracle is about. The water of shadows in the Old Testament becomes the wine of fulfillment in the New Testament. As Jesus transforms the very water used for the rites of purification into wine, the self-proclaimed symbol of his blood in the New Covenant. And as one biblical scholar puts it, this incident illustrates at once the poverty of the old dispensation with its merely ceremonial cleansing and the richness of the new in which the blood of Christ is available both for cleansing and for drink. The Lord's Supper testifies to us today of this truth. By the blood of Jesus, we are washed clean of our sin and filled that we may thirst no more. And this is for us good news. It is the greatest news ever, in fact, because there can be no deeper word spoken to our guilt, sin-polluted hearts than the word of grace offered in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 doesn't have to leave us with a merely symbolic system, but continues telling us that Jesus Christ, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified 
For as we are told earlier in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There is, brothers and sisters, permanent relief of guilt for those who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us that those who have been justified by faith have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this new age inaugurated in Jesus Christ, of which this miracle points, presents us with a new covenant that is not just one of prescription, but one of power. As God foretells through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean of all of your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells Titus has happened in Jesus Christ. He writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we aren't just being washed clean in the blood of Jesus. We are being made new, regenerated, and empowered to live holy lives. New creations in this new age under the rule of King Jesus. As the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And John's gospel will continue for the next few chapters telling us all that is made new in this new age that Jesus brings. There will be a new temple. There will be a new birth. There will be new water, living water. There will be new worship in spirit and truth. John is showing us that in Jesus Christ, we have truly received grace upon grace. And it starts right here in the transformation of water to wine. And John doesn't want us to miss the greatness of what's being offered. The sheer quantity of the wine produced points to the lavish provision an abundant grace of the new creation in Jesus Christ. John tells us that there are six jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water, and they are filled to the brim. I'm not a mathematician, but that means that there is somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. 
there is enough wine to sink a ship, as they say. Dearly beloved, how much grace is there in Jesus Christ? Enough to sink every one of our sins to the bottom of the ocean. This is what the prophet Micah tells us. God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, oh God, will cast our sins into the depths of the seas. If you are wondering this morning if God's grace is abundant enough to cover your sins, if God can truly wash a sinner as wretched as you clean, have no doubt. God's grace is poured out in abundance in Jesus Christ. But this miracle doesn't just highlight the quantity of God's grace. It also highlights the quality of God's grace. The master of the feast tastes the wine that Jesus has made and at once exclaims, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Dearly beloved, God has given us his best in Jesus Christ and there are no equals to him it isn't just the old order of the Jewish law and customs that Jesus has replaced with something better there is nothing better than what we have been offered in Jesus Christ he is all sufficient to meet our every need and not only this but to provide us with life in abundance filled with the fullness of joy and hope and peace and who does he come for? Well, this first sign occurs in a small little town at a wedding of a bunch of no-names. This little detail tells us something great and magnificent about our God because it presents us with a Savior who is not only gracious and generous and compassionate, but also one who is accessible and beautiful. As one biblical scholar puts it so well, these verses describe the earthing of the ministry of the divine word in human life. The prologue of John's gospel lifts our vision to the vistas of eternity in the inner being of God. And John now shows us the glory of the eternal word intersecting with ordinary folk in the midst of their everyday ordinary lives people with deep human need, and therein lies the wonder of Christ in the gospel. It brings together the heights of heaven and the depths of earth, the glories of God and the agonies of humanity. Jesus is here for us, ordinary folk, going about our ordinary lives in the highs of life, at weddings, graduations, the birth of children, promotions at work, but also in the lows. As we struggle with the reality that much of life is dealing with the fact that the wine is constantly running out, where marriages are broken, where relationships with family and friends are fractured, where there are grueling and demanding responsibilities at work where there are disappointments and feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. And he's here. 
And he shows up in power because he loves us with a steadfast love. The reality is, though, that there are many who are offering solutions to life's greatest challenges and who offer promises to fill life's greatest desires. There are many people and things in whom we can place our hope, our trust, our faith. But there are none which satisfy. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom in whom there is fullness of life. It is only in him that we can be washed clean, and it is only he whose goodness never runs dry. But how often do we try to fill ourselves with the cheap stuff? How often do we get drunk on the things of this world and attempt to satisfy ourselves with what is temporal, It isn't insignificant here in this passage that Jesus seemingly waits until the very last moment because the reality is the want has to be felt. The want has to be felt. What we receive from Jesus can't be had as long as we still have enough. As long as we feel as though we have no need, it isn't the full insatiated who are fed. It is the hungry, the tired, the weak. And there is a message here that whoever deems himself wise, strong, pious, whoever finds in himself something good is not yet a poor, miserable, sick sinner and fool who will look to Christ for life. Dearly beloved, there cannot be any other option. So even as this miracle focuses on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and highlights our great weaknesses, our failures, our inability, it also calls us to faith and obedience to receive God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is the faith of Mary who, even though Jesus seems to dismiss her request, she still instructs the servants to do what Jesus tells them to do. It's a sign of true faith which entrusts itself into the hands of a sovereign God, which places in his hands life's crises, big and small, with the confidence that he will work them out according to his perfect will and in his perfect goodness. And then there are the disciples who we are told believe in Jesus because of this miracle. And that's no minor point, dearly beloved. The disciples first believed in Jesus when they followed him in chapter 1. And what do they do here? It says at the end of the passage that they believed in him again. Literally, they believed into him. They entrusted themselves afresh to his care. This miracle is showing us the substance of true faith. It is a repeated trusting in Jesus. For trusting in him is not a one-time act. It is an everyday occurrence. Unfortunately, there are some in this passage, even in the midst of being witnesses to a present Savior in a spectacular, supernatural act of a sovereign God who nonetheless see the sign but somehow miss the glory. And John tells us that the master of the feast recognizes the quality of the wine but did not know where it came from. And the servants, though we are told, knew where it came from. John is silent to their response. 
even as he is sure to point out that his, this sign resulted in Jesus' disciples all the more placing their faith in him. Dearly beloved, don't let this be you. Don't be unknowing witnesses to God's power to save in Jesus Christ. I beg you, don't leave this sanctuary this morning without knowing that the same Jesus who acted with power and compassion on earth still acts with power and compassion now. He acts to save people from their sins, restore them to fellowship with God, and give hope for a future resurrection from the dead. Know this and place your faith in him. Behold his goodness. Taste and see that he is good and trust your lives into his hands. Come broken and dirty and find him to be your all in all. Hold nothing back because God has held nothing back from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as you have filled us with your word, that your word would take hold of our lives, that we would turn from our sins, from our filth, and that we would be cleansed by the saving blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross of Calvary. Wash us clean, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us new creations in Christ. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sit at the right hand of God.